Good morning. Welcome again to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you're with us. If you're a guest with us, um, thank you for being here. And happy Father's Day to all of us uh, fathers. This is our day, you know, our one day out of the year that we get the preferential treatment. So, you know, milk it for all it's worth uh, because tomorrow life goes back to normal, right? But today, today you guys can choose if you want steak or seafood, right? And who's going to grill it? That's, it's not you. So you get that. You, it's your preference. Um, do you like cherry pie or chocolate cream? You choose, right? Don't, don't give in. Chocolate ice cream, you know, or vanilla ice cream. It's your preference. You choose. The red tie or the blue tie? Whatever you want, you, and you got the opposite, take it back. Tell, tell them to take it back. It's your preference. Uh, long sermon, short sermon. It's, no, that's my preference. <laughs> but um, preferential treatment is okay, except when it comes within the body of Christ. Uh, we have to be very careful if we show partiality within the body of Christ. We're stuck in Romans chapter 12, the section about how we are to love within the body of Christ, within the church. And last week I read a verse from chapter 12, verse 16, where it says, be of the same mind toward one another and not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly and do not be wise in your own estimation. True biblical, the real deal love um, doesn't think highly of oneself and doesn't think lowly of others and doesn't give that preferential treatment, doesn't show that partiality to other people. I want to unpack this verse a little bit more today. Um, and let me start with a definition of partiality. It's something like this, showing unfair bias or giving preferential treatment to a person or a, or a group of people at the expense of others and um, all for selfish reasons or sinful reasons, kind of the external criteria. I'll base whether I give you preferential treatment based on what I think about you, what I see about you, and it'll always benefit me in that preferential treatment. Now, if you think about this for a moment, um, the, the, the fallen sinful nature, just the propensity of sin, causes us to um, prefer people that look like me, act like me, you know, that the closer people are to who I am, my social economic level, my educational level, um, the color of my skin, or, or whatever it might be. The sinful heart causes us to gravitate to people who are more like myself. On the, you know, conversely, the opposite can be true, that the more dissimilar a person is from me, then I may pull away from them, stiff arm them. It's a, it's a sinister trap that we can fall into as uh, human beings, and it comes in all shapes and sizes, this idea of preferential treatment, a, a biased judgment towards others based on those external criteria. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, it was about 20 years ago when we were building this building, and we had hired a, 
one of those capital campaign firms, a very reputable uh, organization, and we hired them to help us raise funds and do that kind of thing. Um, but one of the key things of their program <clears throat> was you were to identify all the big givers of a church, of the church, and invite them to a special dinner, and then, you know, kind of wine and dine people, and they hit them with the big, uh, the big ask uh, thing, and we said, well, that's not who we are. We don't, we don't do that kind of stuff. We don't even know who gives what. So we're not going to do that, because that just seems wrong. And we were chastised because, well, you're, you're not going to raise money that way. I mean, that's, that's the keystone. That's what you do. Well, that's not what we do, we said, and so we didn't do it. And I think God honored that, and we were able to pay all this building. But um, it, it's kind of giving that preferential treatment to, to the big givers. Um, partiality comes in all shapes and sizes. I knew of a church back in my home state of Nebraska that um, there was a guy in the church who was involved in that, the local rescue mission. And he was doing a bang-up job because every Sunday it seems like he was bringing someone new from the rescue mission to the church. And they were sitting right there in the front row. And then the, the front two rows. And, uh, and it started causing some issues in the congregation because, you see, these guys, some didn't even have a shower. And they were pretty kind of rough-looking and, um, and didn't have the, you know, the, the proper public decorum. And there was some outbursts of amens and things like that, and the, you know, inappropriately. And, and so some of the people came to the leadership in the church and said, hey, we, we can't have this. They're, they're going to keep they're going to keep good people from coming to church. Uh, preferential treatment. By the way, the church split. Um, you could take a church youth group. It can happen all ages. You can have kids from that school not, uh, you know, connecting with kids from that school or homeschoolers kind of sticking away, staying away from the public schoolers. And um, preferential treatment, showing partiality. A person of color may feel more uncomfortable uh, in a predominantly white church. A white person may feel uncomfortable in a non-white church. Uh, it just unfortunately goes against the very character of God. We're told in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. You see, it runs contrary to the heart of God. The apostle Peter found this out in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, he said, truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, it is acceptable to him. That was a big lesson for Peter because he had to learn that the hard way. He was a, he was a Jew. And in the early church, Jew, well, for decades, Jews wanted nothing to do with Gentiles, non-Jews. There was preferential treatment to fellow Jews, but boy, the Gentiles were, were subhuman. And yet Peter was told by God to go connect with this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. No, I could never do that, said Peter. And God says, oh, yes, you can. Gave him a swift kick in the you-know-what. And through a series of circumstances, Peter went and met with Cornelius. Cornelius and his family trusted Christ as their Savior. And Peter says, oh, boy, I guess you're right. God does not show partiality. He's an impartial God. It's an attitude that is to carry over to God's people. Like the Apostle Paul, uh, shortly after Paul got converted to Christ, uh, he had a meeting in Jerusalem with uh, some of the, the big muckamucks of the church, you know, Peter, James, John, and it was his first meeting with these people. 
And um, he said this in Galatians chapter 2, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality, but those of reputation contributed nothing to me. And what Paul is simply saying is, I went up to Jerusalem and met with the reputed pillars of the church, but what they were makes no difference to me because it makes no difference to God. God doesn't show partiality. Now, that, just a clarification, that doesn't mean we don't make distinctions and aren't called as believers to make distinctions within the body of Christ. Um, you have someone who might be a believer in the body of Christ who is in, in sin. A little leaven, Paul says in Corinthians 5, can leaven the whole lump of dough and we're to go confront them in their sin. It's making a distinction. The Bible says believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You've got to make a distinction there. Um, we are told to uh, uh, be careful how we choose our leaders. And there is uh, distinctions that have to be made. And, and the roles within a church and within a home, you make distinctions. But what what Paul is concerned with in Romans 12, verse 16, of, of not thinking too highly of oneself, that real genuine unhypocritical love, the real deal love associates with those who are lowly, who aren't quite like you. Um, that real deal love, um, that needs to manifest itself in the life of a local church. Now, key passage uh, on this whole concept of showing partiality is James chapter 2. So I'm going to park in James chapter 2 this morning uh, for a little bit. James chapter 2, so take your Bibles and turn there. This, um, this sin of partiality. It was, uh, it was happening in the early church. And in chapter 2 verse 1, James writes this, my brethren, do not hold your faith and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of, of personal favoritism, of partiality. In other words, and this is a command, by the way. Uh, this is not a suggestion. It's a command. Do not show, give preferential treatment. Don't show partiality within the body of Christ because the body of Christ and who God is and giving preferential treatment to people based on this exterior value system, they're mutually exclusive. Don't do it is the command. And the other thing I want to bring on in verse 1 is that that word that is used for personal favoritism or, or partiality uh, is in the plural. Again, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritisms, of partialities. He doesn't give us a list because it could be different for any person. Watch out. Guard against it. Don't, don't make judgment calls based on social economic level, uh, uh, the color of the skin, um, sex, whatever it might be. Guard against that. Now, in the context, James has something particular in mind. He's got a particular situation in mind that he wants to address. Look at verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a, in a poor man 
in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and you say, oh, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. And by the way, the preposition that is used there is under my footstool. James is making the stark contrast, the, the finely clothed, come sit in this great place and, and the other person smell my feet under my footstool. He says in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Have you not discriminated and become judged with evil motives? James concludes that we show partiality within the body of Christ. It has a source, and the source is sin. It's evil motives. It, it comes from sin, the flesh, showing partiality, giving a biased judgment, preferential treatment, has selfish motives. It has selfish ends, and that discrimination is based on these criteria. It's a worldly value system a worldly materialistic value system, not an eternal spiritual value system. Now, in the rest of this passage, James is going to correct that mindset that obviously was plaguing the early church. And by the way, James is the earliest epistle written. So he's hitting this thing right off the bat because it, was, it had infiltrated that mindset in the early church. And he's going to combat that sin of partiality by sharing three truths. Truth about who God is, truth about what God has said, and thirdly, truth about what God is going to do one day. So first of all, truth about what God says. James is saying here that showing partiality shows a, a partial understanding about who God is. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. And, and by the way, that's pretty, it's pretty... Um, a very boldly written statement. It's, all, it's almost like James is assuming he's lost people. You know, okay, fine clothed golden earring person comes in and, and, and um, evil motives, and it's like I've lost people, and he's waking people up. Hey, listen, you gotta, you gotta grab this thing. I'm talking seriously, says James. Listen, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Is that not God's way? Isn't it in the heart of God to do things that we humans just would not do, have a value system that's different? He said, you've dishonored the, the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called don't they besmirch the very character of God because it runs contrary to the character of God to show partiality? If, however, or verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name of God by which you have been called? It's the very character of God not to be partial. We see this throughout Scripture. Um, take the people of Israel. James is writing to Jewish people predominantly Christian Jews in the early church. They knew their history. This group of slaves that came out of Egypt, God chose them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest. You were the less of all the peoples. I mean, come on, God, wouldn't you 
kind of done better by choosing the Egyptians. They were most powerful. That'd be kind of in keeping with who you are, the great powerful God. But you chose the Jews of all people. Well, that's, it's in the heart of God. Remember the story of Ruth? A widowed foreigner in stark, abject poverty. And yet she becomes, she's in the line, the lineage of the Messiah. David? No one would have chose David. Samuel comes to anoint the next king, goes to Jesse. Hey, where are your sons? And he, he marches them out, you know, from the tallest and, and strongest and handsomest. And they kind of, well, no, none of these will do. Don't you have another son? Well, yeah, but just little David, he's out in the, with the sheep, you know. Well, bring him, bring him here. He gets anointed because Samuel said, you see, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. God has a different value system. It's not based on uh, externals. It's not some biased preferential treatment towards people that will make him look good. Um, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, consider your calling, brethren. There weren't many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he can nullify the things that are. Why? So, so that we don't boast in man. We boast in God. Fact of the matter is, there's not a person in this room that I would have chosen to be a part of my forever family. You wouldn't have chosen me. But that's what God does. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, it's not because of some merit, some wonderful thing that we can offer God, like, oh man, I want him in my family, you know? Like the kid who's, uh, you know, trying to get his uh, baseball team together during recess. You know, hey, I want, you know, I want Billy Bob, you know, he can hit it out of the park. That's, that it's, God has a different value system. Take Jesus. No respecter of persons with Jesus to the uh, chagrin of the uh, religious leaders of the day, right, who walked about in their fine clothes and all their, you know, fancy and strutted about in their spirituality. Matthew 22, verse 16, one of his enemies actually said, boy, you aren't swayed by men, are you? Because you pay no attention to who they are. No, you see, he, he favored the widow who gave her might, her last coin over the the pompous Pharisee who gave his bundle of wealth. You could take a, a boisterous fisherman by the name of Simon that just, just would annoy the, everything out of you. And he saw in him a rock upon which he would build his church. He would take a, uh, a despised tax gatherer, but he saw in Matthew someone who would write one of the four gospels and be one of his disciples. The disciples were amazed to see Jesus one day talking to the, the woman at the well in Sychar. By the way, if you, if you watch The Chosen, that, that series about Jesus, uh, the, the la I think that's the last one in the first year of The Chosen series, and you know, it'll bring tears to your eyes as Jesus encounters this woman that no one else would want to encounter, certainly not his disciples. A Samaritan woman who is a woman of ill repute. 
But God has a different value system. And he engages her, and he, he saw her need, and he saw her, as a, he saw her as an evangelist to her city who went back and said, come see a man who told me everything about me. James tells us in verse 5 of chapter 2, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. That's a sad fact, isn't it, that oftentimes the more we have, the less we find ourselves trusting God because we don't need to. We can take care of things. We, a crisis comes, well, we, you know, depending on our bank account or retirement portfolio, we can, we can kind of trust our ability or our financial planner's ability to make sure we, uh, you know, are, are well established on our feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the poor people that just say, I, I've got nothing, but I have God. And, and, and the idea as a general principle is that when we're stripped from all those props of life, we have that opportunity to look up and, and trust a God who will supply our every need. We become rich in faith. And even, even like a muscle, faith has to be used and, and stretched to get strong. Um, there are several options that are put before us in these verses. Uh, we can be, here's option one, poor in this world, materially speaking, but spiritually rich in the world to come. Or we could be rich in this world, materially speaking, and be absolutely impoverished in the world to come. Or we could be poor in this world and poor in the world to come. Or we could be rich in this world and rich in the world to come. I kind of prefer that last one, actually, but uh, th those are options. Now, of course, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that the age to come is the age um, that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12 when he said, don't lay up or sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear up on failing treasures in heaven where no thief comes no near nor moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's something in the future that is yet to come. Guard your value system because though you might be poor in this world, you can be rich in the world to come. James wanted to remind his readers of these things, especially when a poverty-stricken uh, fellow believer comes into the assembly and uh, people don't want to associate with him. Um, remember this truth about God, James is saying. Uh, poor means rich in faith. God has a different value system. Second of all, James is saying that showing partiality shows a, a partial understanding of the very Word of God, what God has said, what God has communicated. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And it explains, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law yet offends in one point 
stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. It's a, it's a package deal. It says do not commit adultery. It also says do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but you don't commit murder, or you don't commit adultery and you do commit murder, well, you've broken the law. It's a package deal. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, again, he's writing predominantly to Jewish Christians in that first century early church. They understood the law. The first four commandments had to do with man's relationship with God, the vertical laws. The next six commandments have to do with man's horizontal relationships with fellow man. But you break one law, you've broken it all. You show partiality, you're not loving. You're not loving one another. Jesus said the whole law can be summarized in those two commandments, love God and love others. You show partiality, you're not loving unhypocritically. You're not, you're not loving with the real genuine, real deal love. And it's like you have broken all the laws. How we treat one another is crucial, says James. It's the royal law, he says. It's the royal law of love. It's the heart of God. And you show partiality, it shows you've got a hypocritical love, a tainted love. Because the entire law is summed up in that one word, love. Thirdly, finally, James says that if you show partiality, um, it shows that you've got a partial understanding of what God is going to do one day. It's a partial understanding of, of the future, of what's, what's, going to, what's going to happen, what God's plan is. You see, James is saying judgment day is coming. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act. Live your life in such a way as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment day is coming. Every born-again Christian needs to be aware that there is a day of judgment that awaits us. Now, it, it, does have, it has nothing to do with our entrance into heaven. That's a free gift, right? We don't get to heaven based on how we live our lives. It's called grace, unmerited favor. God's not going to be, you know, at the end of our life, pull out his big scales and he's going to weigh our good works against our bad works to determine if we're going to enter heaven. That is settled the moment we put our trust in Christ. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him puts their faith in Him. And at that moment of faith, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of, of the beloved Son. And that moment of faith. But James is not talking about how to get into heaven. He's talking about a day of judgment where every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, as sure as we're sitting here this morning, every one of us are going to stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ. You may understand it or have heard of it as the Bema seat of Christ. I'm not going to take time to unpack that, but 2 Corinthians is a verse that says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or or bad, there's going to be an accounting. Not to enter kingdom, listen, but how we're going to serve in the coming kingdom. 
not to enter heaven, but how we're going to serve in heaven. It's an amazing thought. We teach this here. This is a, 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 one of our core teachings at Fellowship over the years. We, we, we live right now in this little speck of sand, right, called now. I mean, this, our life, 80, 90 years, if God gives us strength. It's a speck of sand in the, in the ocean of eternity, of all the sands of eternity. We're right now living in a really, just a little speck of sand called right now. But it is eternally important how we're living in this speck of sand. Because how we're living now impacts all of eternity to come in how we're going to serve the master and the king. We stand and go to give an account of how we have lived in this law of liberty, he says. We're going to be judged by the law of liberty, by the law of grace. He saved us freely by his grace. He empowers us freely by his grace. He says, I want you to live a life of genuine, real deal, unhypocritical love so that the world will see a difference, that my name will be glorified. I'm calling you out of the depths of your sin and depravity. I'm going to make you my own children. I'm going to place upon you my eternal presence through my spirit. I'm going to empower you to live a godly life for my glory. But you've got to appropriate it. It's the, it's the law of liberty. We've been set free from our sin to serve a new king. And to the degree that we appropriate that grace and live in light of that on this speck of sand called now, folks, it's got eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. We'll determine how we're going to live for him. Go back to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? heirs of the kingdom to those who love him. Everyone's going to enter the kingdom. Not everyone is going to be a co-heir and reign with Jesus in those roles of service in the kingdom to come. This is the proving ground right now. It, it, It makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? He's calling us now to love without hypocrisy, to to express to him a life of devotion and honor that, that can be reflected to the world. And when we draw upon that, that faith and our, our faith grows and we find that Jesus is reduplicating himself in our life and we're living out in a compelling ways, we will stand before that judgment seat and, and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant co-rulers with Christ, heirs of the kingdom. But as we close, I passed over a little phrase in verse 1 that I want to go back to, and I think it's the key. I think it's crucial. Back in verse 1, as James began this paragraph, he said, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's the New American Standard Version. If you've got a New King James Version or, or an English Standard Version, I really prefer that translation in this verse because it says something more to the effect, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of the Lord of glory with partiality. 
the Lord of glory. That word glory has an article in front of it, the glory. In fact, if you've got the New King James Version or the English Standard Version, the second Lord isn't even in there. What James is saying is, my brethren, don't hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, with personal favoritism. The glory! Now again, he's writing to Jewish believers. They would have understood this thing. The glory! In Romans chapter 9, this was months ago, we, we were in Romans chapter 9, and there was a list of things that, that Paul writes about of the benefit of, of being a Jew. You have this. You've been given the law. You've been given the covenants. You, he says in chapter 9, verse 4, you've been given the adoption of sons and the glory. Well, they knew what that was. It was this, the presence of God. It was the Shekinah glory. Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. What happened to him? He got the glory. His face shone, uh, disappeared. He had to cover his face, but it, he, he came face to face with the glory. He wanted to see it. Exodus chapter 34, Moses says, I want to see your glory. God said, well, no, nobody can see my glory and live to tell about it, but here's what I'll do. I'll let my glory pass by, and I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and you can see the backside of the glory. You can get just a little bit of the, 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 the trail end of the glory, and that's what happened. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and the glory of God, the very summation of all the essence of God, and as that glory passed by, the words were, were no doubt shouted out, the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah God, full of mercy, compassion, loving kindness, the summation of all that God has passed by. And Moses saw a glimpse, the brilliance of the, of the, of the full essence of who God was. And James is simply saying, don't hold your faith in our Lord Jesus. The glory. That's who Jesus is. He's the glory. There's no one like him. He's the essence of all that God is. And when we lose sight of that, how easy it can become to make valuations of people based on their social status, the color of their skin, their educational level, and treat with biased judgment within the body of Christ. Why? Because we've lost sight of the glory. That's where it begins. Folks, that's where our day needs to begin. We are nothing but beloved by the glory. He's the sum total of all that there is that is glorious. And as we look to Him, we understand the glory more and more increasingly every day. How we view one another, how we treat one another gets in line with the heart of God. The sin of partiality has no place in the life of a, of a follower of Jesus Christ who understands the brilliance of the glory. If we forget it, we're going to be too easily swayed by human glory. That's where it begins. That's where it ends.
as we leave here today, I just want to rattle your cage just a little bit, giving you some thoughts. What's your attitude towards maybe someone who doesn't have as much as you materially? What's my attitude to someone who has more than me, materially speaking? How do I view them? What's my attitude to someone who has more education than I do? What's my attitude to someone that um, has a lot more education than I do? Any preferential treatment given in my mind and my heart? What about those who have a more prestigious position, the celebrity status? Ooh, I, I got their autograph. Or someone who has less prestigious position within the body of Christ. Any different attitudes to those who have more talent and skills than me or, or less talent and skills than me? If I'm a man, do I view a woman differently, less respectfully? If I'm a woman, do I view a man differently? Those who come from a different ethnic background than me, do I view them differently? It's a, a different religious background than me, do I view them differently? If I'm married, what's my attitude towards the singles? If I'm single, what's my attitude towards the married? See, this can come and bite us in all sorts of different ways. Guard our hearts. And we guard it when we understand the glory. May the thought of Jesus Christ, the glory, guard us from the sin of partiality. Let's pray. And so, Father, knowing that we will stand and give an account before you one day, knowing what you are going to do one day, knowing, Father, what you have said, knowing who you are, an impartial God, I pray, Father, that um, you would work and conform us into that same image from glory to glory as we behold your glory. Um, may we be sensitive, Father, to your Holy Spirit so that when we interact with those within this body or fellow believers elsewhere or just even in our society, we will do so with the pure, untainted love of Jesus, the glory, and reflect that love in a way that honors you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.